In its quest to provide an open forum for discussion of controversial issues, this station allows hosts and their guests to express themselves without any significant censorship. You are advised that any view expressed by the host or their guest are not necessarily the views of the owners or management of Toginet Radio, Togi Entertainment, or the Owners Group, Inc. us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ghost Chronicles International. I am Ron Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper to the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable New England's own Van Helsink. And with me is not the ghost finder general himself. He is off on holiday again. He's got the life of Riley, I'll tell you that much. Wish I had his freaking money. Anyway, uh, I've got somebody just as good, and he is perhaps half his age, too, uh, which is even better for all you young ladies out there. Anyways, let me introduce to you uh, New England, well, not New England, uh, England's favorite psychologist, Paris slash psychologist, Cal Cooper. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ron. How's it going? Good, good, good. So, uh, you excited? Oh, you a psychologist, parapsychologist? I, I got confused a little bit because I, I checked your website and it says psychologist and then parapsychologist. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm a psychologist because obviously psychology is the subject that studies the mind and human behavior. So within that, you've got many different aspects. You've got child psychology, you've got social psychology, and the area that I tend to lean towards and do a lot of research in is the paranormal side of human experiences. So that's parapsychology. So um, where you could have a, someone that specializes in child behavior, you could call them a child psychologist, but they're still a psychologist and I'm still a psychologist, but you could call me a psychologist or a parapsychologist, I suppose. So, uh, now, is, well, yeah, I guess, but the, the true definition of a parapsychologist is what? Um, I would say it's someone that studies um, human behavior that seems to have some sort of paranormal element to it, human experiences that seem to be outside the realms of current scientific understanding and we're trying to fill in the gaps so that could be any experience that's suggestive of psychic abilities it could be people claiming they've seen poltergeist activity or witnessed an apparition of the dead so there's that element there is, is the brain capable of surviving after death are we capable of reading people's minds it's that extra element of um, psychology that we're not quite sure of is it capable of expanding beyond the body so um, I, I'd say that you know People that study those areas broadly could be classified as uh, parapsychologists, but typically uh, people tend to go through academic degrees and they do their dissertations on human behavior and paranormal experiences. They'll do an undergraduate degree in psychology, sociology, anthropology, um, and then go on to do doctorates, just focusing a lot on paranormal phenomena, human societies, and human behavior. Now, 
when I mean, I seem like it seems like parapsychologists almost seem like hell bent on uh, disproving paranormal activity rather than uh, studying it. I guess the word is. I suppose it comes across like that. But I think it's more so just trying to make sure that we're not fooling ourselves sometimes. Because admittedly, you know, when you look at all the the various journal publications and texts that we have through time, there's loads of cases that are very much suggestive of something going on that we don't understand. So, uh, for example, when we go to haunted locations, it's important to try and find a source for all those knocks and bangs and why the glass moves on the table or why does the table tilt. And that brings us to a lot of um, psychological explanations or rational environmental situations that could lead us to believe that we're having a paranormal experience. It doesn't mean to say that paranormal phenomena doesn't occur. We've got loads of reports that it does. And there are sometimes when we've looked at these rational explanations, it appears we've got this kind of empty space where we're not quite sure where that experience fits or what's going on there. And it's just uncompleted science, I suppose. Psychology is trying to understand that mind-to-mind -mind interaction of telepathy. It's trying to understand interactions with ghosts. Um, and, and that's what it's trying to do. We're trying to slowly fill in the gaps from what we already know of current social sciences. I, I, I mean, even when you just spoke, you, you didn't say, like, we have uh, uh, evidence of uh, paranormal activity. So, I mean, do you consider there is no evidence of paranormal activity? I, I think people t tend too often to kind of define paranormal as something that can't be explained. It's just this ooh, weird, spooky category, and we'll, we'll put it in a box over there, and it's just freaky stuff, and it's going to scare you. There's got to be some explanation for it, because it's something we're experiencing. We can... Um, go out and experience it, we can categorize it, we can read about it. There's something there, and it involves humans to actually go and experience it and interact it, and maybe we could record it or document it somehow. There is some sort of explanation to it, but it's in a category where we don't currently understand how it functions. You know, when you look at a, a survey of different apparitional experiences, if you've got a load of people and ask them, have they ever seen a ghost?, if you did that to 100 people and asked them, you'd probably get different types of apparitions that they've seen. Right. And parapsychology has found different categories of ghosts and apparitions. So, you know, there, there is some sort of pattern going on. Is it a nonsensical pattern, or does it mean that there's something there and eventually we will be able to develop some sort of hypothesis for explaining ghosts? Um, and as I've mentioned before, I think I briefly mentioned it before with um, ancient Egypt, but, you know, going back to the ancient Egyptians, they experienced ghosts, and, you know, uh, in a very religious society, they tried to explain ghosts in terms of their religion. In current societies, everyone's got so many different religious beliefs. Um, but ultimately, it's a human experience. So we're trying to understand this human... Right, I mean, that's... I mean, I, I see that that's, you know, being your primary as a psychologist, it, it always goes back, it's how people perceive them rather than accepting the fact that perhaps spirits exist. Mm. In other words, you're saying, you know, okay, we categorize ghosts on how they were, you know, seen by different people or something, rather than saying we categorize ghosts in itself, rather. But you always refer to it as the human experience versus, uh, you know, an entity in itself. Well, if it's like an independent force, again, it drops back into psychology, because are we suggesting that there's some sort of force that's independent of its own mind and consciousness, and is it consciousness surviving after death? 
mm-hmm. if it's actually, you know, the spirit of um, someone that was once alive and is now living on. It's trying to understand, is survival possible? What happens to our personality and conscious state after we die? So um, I think parapsychology is very misunderstood. Um, sorry, the term paranormal is very misunderstood. <laughs> in, in that, well, parapsychology is misunderstood too, but that's a different <laughs> The term paranormal is misunderstood because people think, you know, it, it's nonsense, it's rubbish. A lot of people will instantly, you know, turn their head away from the term paranormal. But, but I think it boils down to a lot of the time it just means science doesn't currently understand all these experiences that fit under the category right. paranormal. It doesn't understand the processes we can kind of find rational explanations for them if we take each case and judge it on its merits but as a whole there's no universal explanation all right and uh, to add more sparks to the fire or flames to the fire we have a gentleman with us today who looks at it entirely different than the uh psychological end i believe too don't we uh mr cooper yeah, we do indeed. Um, are you going to introduce him? Or no, I would, I would like you to, because you, you are much more familiar with him than I am. All right. Um, the guest that we have um, on tonight is none other than Jack Hunter of the University of Bristol, and he is from a background of anthropology and is the founder and editor of the journal Paraanthropology as well. So welcome, Jack. Hi. Uh... Hi. I hope that was a okay description of who you are <laughs> briefly yeah that, that was all right thanks <laughs> oh there we go <laughs> um uh you've never spoken to uh ron before but ron jack jack ron there you oh, yeah. go <laughs> <laughs> so i mean you you look at things a little bit different than cal does right and a little bit me. differently yeah so um, you yeah go ahead karen no karen <laughs> let her rip <laughs> okay. Well, basically, my approach is anthropological. So what I'm doing is looking at the paranormal from a sort of a more social perspective, trying to understand um, the role that paranormal experiences play in developing cultures and and things like that. Okay. Yeah. So, so your, go ahead. What's your background, Jack? Um, where did you start out and what were your initial studies in, if you could... Uh, kind of right. tell the listeners where you've come from. Yeah, well, I've always really had an interest in the paranormal, um, religion and spirituality for a long time. And um, so, you know, in high school, I, I studied religious studies and I did history and psychology. And uh, sort of from there, I decided that I wanted to go into anthropology because it seemed to be um, the best the best sort of uh, route to study these kind of uh, these kind of things um, from within a sort of fairly solid theoretical framework. Uh, so I opted to do um, a degree in archaeology and anthropology at the University of Bristol. Oh, cool. Yeah. And as the degree uh, sort of went on, I became increasingly interested in the anthropology of religion. And so I focused sort of more heavily on anthropology rather than archaeology. And when it came to deciding on a topic for my dissertation, uh, I wanted to do something that really allowed me to look at the paranormal in more depth. Uh, So I started to look for seance groups in Bristol. And uh, to, you know, very fortunately, I found one literally just down the road from where I lived. And that's where I I really started to get into an anthropological approach to the paranormal. And that would be the Bristol Spirit Lodge. That's right. Yeah, the Bristol Spirit Lodge. 
Uh, now, again, Ron isn't um, aware of the Bristol Spirit Lodge, but you've been there a number of times to kind of conduct field studies and sit in with the Bristol Spirit Lodge and watch yeah. what, what is it? What is it exactly? Um, it's basically a seance group. They gather in, well, basically they gather in a shed <laughs> every, every week, more than once a week. And um, the, 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 uh, the group was set up to sort of promote the development of trance and physical mediumship. So um, they have two or three mediums who come to the lodge every week to specifically to develop their their trance. And they basically sit in a darkened room and um, see what happens. And sometimes things happen. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they don't. Yeah. <laughs> or, I mean, if you go to most seances, they always say something does happen is it, is it has there been a case where you you've gone to a seance where nothing has happened um it's a tough to, tough thing to to sort of pinpoint because um the things that usually happen in these seances to my mind at least um they take on a sort of semi-subjective uh sort of nature it's, it's almost as though they they exist within the mind of the observer, but also on the odd occasion have a sort of um, the sort of um, a group perception of it. The, the group can sometimes experience things. And what I'm talking about here really is a thing called um, face transfiguration. Um, oh, cool. Which, yeah, which I, I've seen a, a couple of times, but it's uh, it's a really strange, <laughs> a really strange phenomenon. And uh, a lot of the time, to me, it seems as though this the things that i i've seen there uh, are my own projection outwards onto the face of the medium but there's been the odd occasion where uh, more than one person has has been in the in the séance room and have come out afterwards and said that they saw the same thing so the the, the sort of boundaries between objective and subjective become a little bit blurred in the séance well what i mean wouldn't it just make sense to just videotape the whole thing or, or to record it, I mean, then that takes away the, uh, at least the the uh, hysterical mass hysteria factor, right? and that you can look back and review it, or several people can review it, that they weren't even there. Yeah, that's true. Um, but like I say, that this this thing is more than just objective. It's not I mean, there are cases of people, you know, recording ectoplasm and, and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But what I'm, what I'm talking about here is like something that requires our participation in the moment to be experienced. It's something that wouldn't necessarily be picked up on a camera, but nevertheless is real. So it is more than a personal, it's more of a personal experience in that uh, perhaps it's, it's, what you see with your mind's eye rather than your own physical sight? Yeah, it, it's a, a personal experience, but like I said, in these certain situations, this personal experience becomes a group experience, and more than one, people, one, more than one person sees the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, one example I can give was um, we were sitting in the seance and the medium was in trance, and we you know we were all watching it and you you see this subtle transformation in the face and there was one distinct moment where i thought well th- there i see the face of um, an old chinese man 
And I didn't mention it to anyone because I, I thought I keep this to myself. But then when we went out afterwards, um, someone independently brought up the same thing, saying that they'd seen the same thing. So that really made me wonder. Mm. Right. I remember also some uh, with some of the kind of physiological reactions you got as well that other people could see um, yeah. that was also brought on by the group experience you um, described in one of your presentations at the Exploring the Extraordinary Conference at the University mm -hmm. of York. You said how you were feeling a sensation in your arm rising up. Uh, could you explain what happened in that case? Yeah, um, it was a day when the medium couldn't come, basically. And uh, on days like that, they decide that the best thing to do would be to have a sort of um, group development session so that everyone who's who can make it um, basically meditates and they just wait and see what happens. Um, mm. And on on this particular occasion, um, I thought, you know, I'll go into the meditation. I've done meditation before. I'll just take this opportunity to relax in a warm environment and, you know, have a nice <laughs> time, <laughs> which was good. And it started off like that. But... Um, as the, the sort of meditation progressed, I started to feel that my heart rate was increasing. And um, I began to feel as though I was sort of myself was moving back from my physical body. And I was sort of allowing a sort of space to open up inside of me. And as this started happening, I noticed, because I was still, I was able to observe my body, but it was as though it was from... Um, sort of slightly further back, as though I was standing slightly behind myself. And um, I noticed that my right hand was starting to sort of shake. I mean, my left hand, sorry, starting to shake. And it was, it was started shaking quite rapidly. And at the moment of my greatest sort of distance from my body, the seance leader said that she sensed a presence behind me. And I, I was quite shocked by this because I also felt as though there was something approaching behind. And um, I sort of snapped out of it and uh, took a little while to, to get myself back to normal for my heart rate to come down. And then after a while, I thought, well, that was interesting. I think I'll try and go back into that state again and find out what's going on there. So I went into the meditation again. And the whole thing came on quicker. My heart rate increased. I felt myself moving back from my body. And then my hands started shaking even more erratically. And nothing more really happened after that. I didn't, it, it wasn't as though I went into a full possession. It was just as though I was sort of being shown that here's an experience that people have, um, which, which leads to the belief, at least, that um, our bodies can be controlled by um, sort of other intelligences and that, that gave me a good grounding I think Would you describe it specifically as some sort of other intelligence taking over your body or because you went through meditation in the first place it's just a sort of altered state of consciousness and awareness so you're sort of having an out-of-body experience but you've not really left your body you're just kind of not so much aware of it anymore you're, you're still there, you've just not quite left Yeah, I, I, I think... Um, the nature of what people call spirits is a little bit, again, as with the subject-object thing, is a little bit tricky. It's not something that we can pinpoint exactly. We can't say that the spirit is, is this or that. It's like um, if you think about our personalities, our personalities exist 
um, in relation to other pe- other people, to other personalities. And I think it's the same with spirits. Um, they exist relationally to us. They, they sort of, they require our participation in order for them to make themselves known. So while a part of that experience could have been some sort of outside intelligence, it was also a part of my own mind, my own intelligence. And when the two things come together, they create a sort of independent entity. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that's sort of what was going on there. So I had an expectation that something was going to happen and something else out there needs that kind of expectation in order to make itself known. Yeah. I, I think it's fascinating. I, I'm really you looking at it uh, at a different point of view. But, I mean, why did, uh, I mean, I think when you think about all the different methods of spur communication, why did you partic- take this, uh, chose this particular group to study? Well, it was pretty pragmatic. Basically, they lived down the road, so... Yeah, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, but it was, a, it was a perfect opportunity because the more I, I researched um, mediumship and the more I read into spiritualism and the, sort of, and the, the, psychi- the literature of psychical research, the more I found that there, were, you know, there was this big body of literature and that there really was something seemingly going on here. It wasn't just a matter of simple delusional fraud. Something is going on, whether it's just altered states of consciousness or whether it's, you know, some sort of spirit presence is still a moot point, but definitely something is going on beyond the simple debunking of it, the simple, like, over-rationalizing. Now, I mean, when we study the paranormal and we study paranormal activity, we are studying it uh, with the tools that we have. Do you think in the future there will be perhaps better tools uh, that can give us more definitive answers? Um, I think the methodology of anthropology is a good tool that other people who are involved in paranormal research should be using. Um, And I suppose, in a way, ghost hunting and and all of that sort of thing is is a kind of participant observation. It is people going in there. But if people are trained in the the sort of methods of anthropology, they, they can bring a new perspective on paranormal research. They can begin to appreciate the, the, social, the role of the social in allowing paranormal phenomena and experiences to come about. Mm-hmm. And they also, um, because obviously the social is, is clear, you know, it's clearly an important aspect of this. And um, it also allows us to sort of get a better understanding of our own role in the manifestation of paranormal phenomena and experiences. It's, it's sort of like a first-hand approach. You, you, you look at it from your own experience. Mm. You always find that with um, the, the ghost hunting and the, the haunting experiences when you send in a team of people and it seems the most activity you've got out of the night is from the group experience, uh, especially when you've got groups that only want to do stuff like table tipping or glass moving and yeah. it's group participation. Everyone's getting into the moment. They know the place is supposedly haunted. You've got suggestion there. And then, you know, as I would see it as a psychologist, you've got the idiomotor effect playing on the, the table tipping and the glass moving. Whether that is or isn't the cause of it, people are still getting into the moment and believe that something's going on. This communication with some 
other entity. I mean, I always take a step back and watch it, but you mm-hmm. can see that, you know, the majority of this activity wouldn't be happening unless you had people here to experience it as a group in the first place. You know, that's why it's sometimes um, also you've got that also personal element when it's just one person that goes into a haunted location and they see a ghost, but they don't usually realize what kind of experience they've had until they leave the location and tell someone about it. And someone fills in the gaps for them and says, oh, you've seen the ghost of so-and-so. You know, it might not be evident unless you've actually got the group there to kind of work off these experiences. Um, It's fascinating when it comes to haunting stuff in that case. You do wonder if you just left cameras running, would you still actually get haunting phenomena if the building was totally empty no people no interaction you were just filming what's there yeah absolutely i mean that's that's a great way of doing things but um i actually want to comment on us i know that we're coming up on break but when you think about it now for instance waverly sanitarium in the united states is a a very well-known paranormal hot spot you know it's creepy it's whatever and they get hundreds and hundreds of people there and i'm sure you have places like that in the uk as well and yet of all those hundreds of people there will only be certain peoples in groups that have an experience so i believe that and well, this is my latest theory, okay, is that paranormal activity is really meant for the particular person who experiences it rather than a particular group. And uh, why that happens, we may not know. Uh, Maybe we don't have the understanding of it right now, but to me it seems more of that, uh, that is more of the case. Well, if you look at the the sort of anthropological literature, you see that in, you know, innumerable societies throughout the world, there are certain individuals who are, you know, this is sort of their domain, the the shaman and and the mediums. It's, there's definitely certain people who are more able to sort of participate in that other reality. I think that's, you know, definitely an aspect. But, um, the, the social is also a significant aspect. The theatre of um, of the haunted house, you know, all of that is is necessary, I think, for the production of paranormal effects. Uh, it is, but if you look at it from a different point of view, saying, okay, we don't understand this yet. Okay, we don't understand, but perhaps a spirit uh, who has passed is making himself known. Uh, to for a particular reason to this person. Yeah. Uh, that, if you believe in spirits, I mean, you have to, you know, kind of go with that theory that it's spirits do exist, and why is this only this person seeing that? And it may be because they're supposed to see it. I would agree. Yeah. Uh, definitely. I mean. It's it's you know it's a difficult thing thinking about the reality oh, it of spirits. It's 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 a strange thing, but I I, I would I don't I just don't know. <laughs> I don't well, know. We don't. I mean, really that's why it's called paranormal. It's because it's not normal. We don't understand it. Either yeah. it it really doesn't exist, or we just don't understand it. I mean, it's it, for instance, if you go all the way back to the, the beginning of time, and when man experienced things he didn't understand, it was paranormal. It was the gods. It was spirits. It was ever. 
Yeah. So, so we, we really don't know, and we have to take a break right now anyway. So <laughs> I, actually, we have a great question from the chat room, and I want, and I want to answer that when we get back. So uh, you are listening to Ghost Chronicles International with Cal Cooper and Ron Kolick and our very special guest, Jack Hunter, uh, on TojiNet, Pararex, Ghost Channel, and Beyond. And we'll be right back after the following messages. Welcome to Tokinet, radio with a cutting edge. They're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. They all talk ugly kooky, the Parax family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal, the Parax family. They're strange. Unrestrained. So grab your favorite brew. It's time to rendezvous as we give the awards to the Miller X family. Twenty-seven. All right. Hi, I'm Ron Kolek, author and lead investigator of the New England Ghost Project, New England's own Van Helsink. And I'm Ann Kerrigan, the blonde bombshell, and I'm the lead investigator of East Bridgewater's Most Haunted. And we'd like to invite you to tune in. Ghost Chronicles, the next generation. Every Wednesday night. At 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on www.toginet.com. So, so we are, what are they going to hear on this stupid show? What are they going to hear? They are going to hear things that they can't believe are happening. Like uh, Beyond Bizarre. And cemetery tripping. Oh, that's your deal, right? Absolutely. Yeah, one of these days you're going to get uh, so scared of one of these cemetery tripping things that uh, you'll, I'll have to get a new co-host. <laughs> I am brave beyond belief. Nothing yeah, we'll see. scares me. So anyways, if you're bored and you got nothing to do on Wednesday night, tune in to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation with Ann and Ron. See you then. And we are back. You are listening to Ghost Chronicles International with Cal Cooper and Ron Kolick. And our very special guest today is Jack Hunter. Uh, I do want to mention one event coming up on June 29th. And this is, uh, where is it? It is at 21 Maple Street in Arlington. And it's being uh, put on by Mary Lee Tetorino and Mary de Alber. It's called Ghost Spirits in the Paranormal Experience. And it's for benefit of the Theophysical Society in Boston. So uh, it's $20. And uh, once again, that's tomorrow night, 730, 21 Maple Street in Arlington, 20 bucks. Uh, Ghost Spirits in the Paranormal Experience. So anyways, before the, uh, the break, uh, we did have a question and I gotta try to find it again because I kinda lost it. And do, 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 do. oh here it is. Uh this is actually from uh, Mike Toddy. Uh I don't know if you guys know Mike at all. No. No, it's from your neck of the woods, which is the UK. <laughs> but anyways, uh he says, what is your view on intuition? 
Uh, there have been millions of cases worldwide through history. Do you feel that this is paranormal? And actually, it's kind of an interesting thought. Is it paranormal? Well, do you want to go for that one, Cal? Uh, you have a go. How, how would anthropology <laughs> view that? And you know, has that ever cropped up in religion of societies and intuition? And has so, ever is intuition paranormal? I suppose that there are varying degrees of intuition. There's the kind of you know, you've got gut feelings which are not necessarily paranormal, and then there are the sort of more intense intuitions that people might have, you know, verging on, you know, an apparitional experience, you know, a, a dead love, you know, or a dying loved one or whatever. That's def that's you know that's got to be classified as some sort of, you know, intuition. And that, that would definitely be classified as paranormal. So I think there's, a, there's probably a spectrum, you know, an intuition spectrum ranging from the, the pretty mundane to the paranormal at one extreme. Took the words right out of my mouth. That's exactly <laughs> so, so is it an is it? Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> I reckon so. <laughs> um, I, Jack's right. I, I believe that there is kind of the side that you would assume is you think there's something going on, you think there's some sort of paranormal element to it, when it could just be that you're thinking on this supposed intuition too much and that you're just finding connections and um, having a thought and then an event actually happening or being right on something. Um, but I suppose, you know, if you take intuition a bit further and you look at um, having a thought about an event happening and then that comes true, which we would term precognition, um, there are cases of that that seem as though there are things going on, you know, predicting particular events and disasters before they happen. That's, you know, an extreme level of intuitive thought. Um, but I, I think, as Jack said, you've got these varying levels of intuition. And, and one does drop into the extreme paranormal category, which we're not quite sure of how it's operating. Mm -hmm. So hopefully that answers your question. I'm, I'm actually not going to weigh in on that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you guys did a great job. So anyways, but anyways, I have, uh, you guys heard that phone ringing, so it must have been a phone call from the dead, but I actually have one here. Um, last Wednesday, we broadcast uh, live from the... Uh, Lizzie Boyden Murder House, and while we were there, um, Leanne, who's the proprietor of the place, uh, told me this case of uh, where they. Well, let's let's see if we can play it first, and, and then we'll get your opinion on it. So here we go. I mainly heard tapping and whispering. <laughs> All right, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to disconnect my headset. And let's see. Uh, let's try that again. 
I think it's a bit too faint, Ron. <laughs> Is there anything happening? I, I think they're well and truly dead. <laughs> well, that didn't work. <laughs> I, I could have a go um something I found. I don't know if you'd actually be able to hear it through me playing it through the speakers. Um, I know, that's I, I was about it. into additional um phone calls uh, from the dead. Mm-hmm. And oops, one second. I came across um a guy called Mark Macy. He might be quite familiar to you, Ron. I don't know if you've heard of Mark Macy. Uh, not offhand, but um, he um, knew uh, one of the EVP re- researchers, Dr. Constantine Raudovic. And okay. yep. he apparently, after Raudovic died, he got phone calls from the dead from him. Now, one of his colleagues was claimed to have been the person supposedly pranking him, who has a European deep accent. But um, from what I've only just started juggling some of the reports to make sense of this and been emailing Mark to find out whether we can put this down to a hoax or whether something's going on here. But apparently the guy that was believed to be pranking the calls was actually present when some of the calls occurred, so he was eliminated. Um, I can't really sort of believe some of these to an extent because they're so clear. And uh, as Elizabeth told me, Raymond Bayliss, who researched the original phone calls from the dead, he said if something appears outside the categories of the paranormal fields that you know, i.e. something doesn't, it, it's, it appears to be a phone call from the dead, but it's just too good to be true. Just be extremely sceptical because it's bound to be too good to be true. So I'll have a go at playing one of these. Uh, I've got the shortest one here. I'll play a little bit. But mm-hmm. you can hear it's um, the recorded telephone call. On one side, you've got Mark Macy speaking. On the other side, you've got um, the supposed dead Constantine Radovib speaking. So I'll have a go. Let me speak because you are one of the main, essential main points of this network. You are one big dot on it. You understand? And from this big dot, there are departures from other I don't know how clear that was. It's pretty clear. Is it? It's wicked clear. There you've got the deep voice of supposedly Constantine Radovid, and um, Mark sent me over those sound files, but they do sound like someone just basically having a telephone conversation with someone with a deep European accent. Now, in a lot of the reported cases... Um, you know, the, where it's a prolonged call, they apparently take place and appear to be like any other phone call. You wouldn't realise that it's a phone call from the dead till afterwards. But actually having a recorded message like this, it just makes me want to be so sceptical because, you know, something seems to be going on here. And if it is, you've just got to check every path possible. But, Jack, how would you interpret, you know, one of these phone calls from the dead, like what you've just heard, how would anthropology say take a <laughs> take a view on phone calls from the dead? Um, I'm not really sure. It's it's a little bit, you know, it's it's more in the re, in the realm of parapsychology than anthropology. But what I would say, um, thinking about the sort of interpretation of these things, it's something that I've noticed in um, thinking about ectoplasm and photos of ectoplasm. Yeah. Is is that um you know assuming that this is a phone call from the dead, 
that is, you know, what a phone call from the lizard would sound like. How could we tell the difference? You know, mm-hmm. and it's the same with photos of ectoplasm. People are, are very, you know, skeptical when they see a picture of ectoplasm that looks like, you know, muslin gauze or a bit of cloth. But according to the descriptions of people who are actually there, that is what ectoplasm looks like. So how are we supposed to tell the difference from a photo or a recording? Right. Again, it's one of those things. You have to be there. You have to participate. So, you know, it's very, it's very difficult to say just from a recording whether it's, going to, it's supernatural or not. I was always sceptical of the ectoplasm that um, people took photos of where it, it appears like um, it's, it's not coming from a medium. It's, it's in the air and they've taken a photo of it. There was... Um, yeah researcher who was um he was an an inventor and also a mechanic a guy called fr melton who was um, based in nottingham here in the uk and he published a few papers in light magazine which was issued by the college of psychic studies in kensington london and he um in some of his articles put some photographs of ectoplasm that he'd supposedly taken that appeared during seances that he held with his family or friends that came over and he claimed that this ectoplasm would stay in the air for some 15 minutes and he could point out on the photo to you um what parts of this mist with the voice box where the voice was actually emanating from that the spirit was producing but to look at it and uh, to give a skeptical viewpoint it looks like cigarette smoke and (laughs) just bought it at the exact moment you can't kind of You'd have to be there, and exactly. as you do with the Bristol Spirit Lodge, you'd have to be in that moment with other people to experience it. You know, you've got a photograph, okay, so we've got some sort of physical evidence, some objectivity to it, but did it stay there for 15 minutes? Did a voice actually come out of this smoke that we're seeing in the photograph? Where's yeah. it come from? I mean, do we know no one was smoking at the time? This is 1915, 1920 we're looking at here. I mean, it, no, it, it, well, it, it, I'm sorry, okay. go ahead. It's all right. No, it's okay. But uh, th- that's the deal. I mean, it goes back to my theory that really the, the paranormal is a, a personal experience. I mean, uh, I always bring this up, but uh, someone sent me a photograph one time, and it showed a woman, and then it showed a little girl standing next to her. And I looked at it, and she, and she said, well, you see this, the ghost in it? And I'm looking at it and saying, no, I don't see the ghost. And she says, the little girl, it wasn't there. Well, I could see the little girl in the photograph. She's clearly evident and she looks like a little girl yet if that was if she was not there then that perhaps is the greatest proof of a spirit there is but yet we're so skeptical that we would just poo-poo it basically yeah but we weren't there that's because we weren't there so it, it relies so much on the the personal experience but that that phone call was interesting now the one i could not play and, I, and i'm really upset about that if you really want to hear it, you can go to uh last week's ghost chronicles next generation uh wednesday night show and uh we played it at the uh, lizzie Borden house but the interesting fact about it was the area code for the phone call when it came in was 911 and for those i don't know if in the uk but 911 is is an emergency emergency phone number. In other words, you dial 911 when you call the police and you get the police department. So it's it's not an income. And the next three numbers, oddly enough, take it for whatever you wish, was 666. So, I mean, you had a very, you know, unexplainable phone number coming in on top of it. Mm. Weird. It's quite unusual. You very rarely, in phone calls from the dead, get any number coming in. Usually... Uh, about 50% of the cases, the 
certainly Rogham uh, Bayliss found in the 1970s. Right. And before that, when they checked with the operator, they said no one called you at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, there, w- there was no number attached at all. And even with some of the text messages from the dead, sometimes there'd be no text number at all, no time the text was sent, and it wouldn't even say what source it came from. It would just display the message. In other cases, right. if the number did appear, and I even had a case recently where someone had a phone call. Uh, no, uh, they had a missed call from their father's phone, and he died a week before, and they found him dead on the floor of his flat. And they had a missed call on their phone, um, uh, one morning a week later, and the number was displayed as his, knowing the flat was empty. And she showed it to a partner who's one of my best friends, and he said, oh, Christ, and actually saw the number. Later in the day, when she checked back through her missed calls, it wasn't there anymore. And that's happened with some of the text messages from the dead. It seems to erase itself from the phone, which is unusual. It's very strange for it to display a number, especially a very random one like 911666. <laughs> and, and there were four other digits that didn't mean anything. I mean, they were just four random digits uh, that had no significance that we could tell, but uh, we're still looking into it. Perhaps there was a, a date or something that it, it meant to be associated with or whatever. But, I mean, there, there are other cases where uh, phone calls have come in uh, supposedly from the dead, and they were 000, uh, which has happened. But, I mean, in today's modern technology, that's not uncommon, 000. But back then, when they first came out, I remember one particular case in, in that uh, this person died, and uh, this is way back when when the original uh, answer machines and so forth came out, and they, they had a limited number of calls they could accept, and I think it was like 20 or 25, I forget, and the, the uh, thing was actually in a closet, and she went to the funeral, and she came back in. Uh, the light was flashing even though the machine wasn't plugged in or anything, and they plugged it in, and there were like 99 phone calls on it, and they started going through some of the numbers, and they were actually phone calls from people who were deceased. Wow. So, I mean, that was pretty bizarre in itself. Now, once again, that's was it's not that I was there to witness it or anything. This was basically uh, eyewitness testimony to that was told to me, but it's certainly interesting. That, that's one of the hardest things about collecting data for paranormal experiences in the first place, either from parapsychology or paraanthropology. You've got, um, when you are looking for the objective evidence, the paranormal phenomena, and aside from the human experience, all you can do is look at categorizing this stuff. And more so when we're in psychology, we're trying to be very strict and actually get as much information as we can and not as much reliable information as we can. And all that's left is the anecdote unless the researcher was there at the time. This is what's very good with what Jack's doing with the Bristol Spirit Lodge is because he's there as an experimenter, as an anthropologist, in the situation and experiencing it for himself so he can make his own conclusions from that but can also view what everyone else is doing and their interactions and make sense of it. There's numerous times where I've had people that come up to me and say, oh, you're a parapsychologist. Well, I had this experience. Explain that. And it will be something that you can't explain at all because it's bizarre. And every time you try and get the missing information from them to try and fill in the gaps or make sense of it, you can't. They've just said, oh, I saw the apparition of my dad, blah, blah, blah. How do you explain that? 
And the main thing I have to say is, number one, I wasn't there at the time. I wasn't with you. I can't relate to that experience. Mm-hmm. As a scientist, I could explain it like this. And as Jack could say, as a, from an anthropo- anthropological background, this is how we'd explain it. But I wasn't there. Uh, and that's the main thing. You have to be in that experience to kind of realise what was going on at that spontaneous moment for that spontaneous event. Um, but Jack, um, could you tell us about Paraanthropology, the Journal of Anthropological Approaches to the Paranormal? What, what is that and how did that come about and what's been happening with that? And, and is there a website? Because I know I'm going to forget before the show's over. <laughs> yeah, there is a website. The website is um, www.paranthropology.weebly.com. Um, and basically, Paranthropology is the journal. I sort of set it up as a means to to promote dialogue between parapsychologists and anthropologists because they're two disciplines that really have sort of evolved along parallel trajectories they're both the product of victorian the victorian search for knowledge and they've sort of evolved side by side but they haven't really interacted with each other much except for the odd sort of special special case people like andrew lang who who was really interested in trying to get psychical researchers to look at the anthropological literature but i think that parapsychology and anthropology could really learn a lot from each other Um, because if you look at the the sort of crazy experiences that some anthropologists have had and, and there are surprisingly many the kinds of paranormal experiences they're reporting far sort of outweigh the kind of experiences or the kind of effects that parapsychologists are recording in their sort of lab experiments. I think a lot of that is because parapsychology, in its, in its sort of strive to be as objective as possible, which I you know, admit and understand is necessary, but um, in, in trying to get this sort of rigid, strict objectivity, parapsychology has n- neglected all of the sort of the social, emotional, um, cultural components that, that are very often involved in a paranormal experience. And that's what's so interesting about the anthropological literature, because when you read the, the, the anomalous experience of anthropologists, they include all of this extra information in their description of the experience. And through looking at these, these descriptions, these thick descriptions, um, we, we can sort of get a better idea of, of what, what sort of things need to be in place in order for a, a, an extraordinary experience to, to, to happen. And very a lot, you know, a lot of the time, um, these anthropologists report these uh, experiences during rituals, and that's got to be, you know, it's a very obvious, significant component of the experience. The ritual is there as a, a sort of theatrical method to induce these, these kinds of experiences. And all of that has been wiped from parapsychology. They put, they put someone in a room, you know, in a, a, a Gansfeld experiment in, well, sensory deprivation or overstimulation, one or the other. But they're not really, they're not really thinking in terms of the, the sort of natural way these experiences have come about in the past, um, telepathy and, and so on. They, they sort of ignore that aspect of it, which is a shame. And I, so I think that anthropology and parapsychology have got a lot to, to offer each other. Similarly, parapsychology can, can give a lot to anthropology, like the, the sort of a more in-depth appreciation of, of the mechanisms involved in, in the paranormal phenomenon itself, which, paras- which anthropologists haven't really got much interest in. Or and there's, there's actually a third element here that we don't really hear too much, and that would be uh, paranormal archaeology. 
And that's actually an important factor, especially when studying uh, older civilizations. For instance, the the, uh, Oracle of Delphi. Uh, What structures are particularly designed for uh, paranormal activity? Uh, And that certainly would be one. Yeah, exactly. That's the kind of thing that, that, that parapsychological experiments don't really take into account, this sort of ritualized culture where, in which these experiences have traditionally been sort of nurtured. So it, it's not surprising, really, that parapsychological effects are quite, you know, quite small compared, mm-hmm. to, the, compared to traditional accounts of, of paranormal experiences or paranormal f- phenomena. So do we need a paranormal university? So this is where we're, we're branching out. This is why the paranormal can be explored from anthropology, from sociology, psychology, and physics, because there are different things that demand attention. If there's um, a suggestion that there's paranormal cognition going on, then you need the psychology to look at the individual's um, abilities. Um, if a whole society or religion is claiming different things, then you need sociology and anthropology to explore these sociological factors and also their history, their roots, and the religion that comes along with it. And also if people are claiming that they can bend metal with their mind alone or move things in the room, then you need to understand can we measure that in terms of physics. Um, so you've got all these different disciplines that kind of collide. And Gertrude Smeidler, which uh, she's a late parapsychologist. Um, she wrote many different um, articles on parapsychology and did some fantastic research. She did a book called Parapsychology and its relationship to biology, physics, psychology, and psychiatry. And that even has some anthropological articles in it as well. And it just shows how many different fields it branches off into and how many uh, different disciplines uh, can approach the paranormal and understanding human interaction. That's similar to, you know, when you look at it on, on, a, on a simpler uh, level as far as, uh, you know, like illness. I mean, illness, you have the medical and the biological, the psychological. Uh, you have all those aspects in uh, analyzing it. I think, I think we need to understand that human beings are not sort of one-dimensional entities. We have so many different things going on that you know we we're interacting with an environment we're interacting in social groups we're you know we have our own internal psychological component we're we're not as simple as as you know as simple as that we can't take just one perspective and and as expect that to explain everything it doesn't make sense you've got to look at it holistically Absolutely. Jack, could you briefly um, explain, I know the first three issues of your journal had specific topics. Could you briefly go through those and what topics you brought up for anthropology and the um, parapsychologists to explore and um, what kind of articles turned up in those that you found quite interesting? Yeah, the the first issue was um, specifically on um, methodologies and and theory. And it, it was sort of the articles that we had in there were basically about different kind of social science approaches to the paranormal, looking at sociological approaches, anthropological approaches, psychological approaches. The second issue was about um, paranormal experiences in the field. So it was actually about people's first-hand experiences and particularly trying to focus on anthropologists' experiences because that's quite a rich body of literature that's got a lot of really interesting stuff that will be of interest to parapsychologists. The third issue focused specifically on um, 
mediumship and spirit possession and had lots of articles for that one um from a range of different perspectives we had people contributing from a a sort of practitioner point of view where they were actually involved in in mediumship themselves and then we had more anthropological approaches which were about uh the articles were looking at um mediumistic cultures around the world the uh fourth issue was about psi and the psychedelic experience and it was looking at the relationship between psychedelic um plants and um the psychedelic experience and the paranormal which was quite interesting obviously there's a there's a huge overlap there which really needs to be looked at in more detail again from a, an interdisciplinary perspective and then the the issue that's coming out in July is um doesn't have a specific theme but it's got lots and lots of different articles from lots of really good writers so yeah it's it's going to be a good one that one fantastic and we're, we're, um, we're, i'm sorry also, cal but where, where can uh, somebody get a copy of this if they want to or or, or how can they access it oh, yeah, it's all, all available to download for free from the website um i mean if you can't remember the address i gave you before the best thing to do is just search for paranthropology on um google and you should find it and all the, all the issues are there available to download for free yeah it's the first thing that comes up when you google it so that's the easiest thing <laughs> yeah. there you go um, so I know we're we're just down to about uh, two minutes left in the show. Uh, anything you want to add? Before? I, I was just going to kind of plug to the speakers that if there are any um, people that want to come over for the conference or UK-based, um, the ASAP conference on the 10th and 11th of September, um, Jack and I are speaking there along with many other different representatives of the paranormal at the Seriously Strange Conference, which is being <laughs> held by ASAP. And also the week before, there's also the Society for Psychical Research Conference. Um, the ASAP one will be at the University of Bath, and the weekend before will be at the University of Edinburgh as well. Um, but I believe Jack will be speaking, you're speaking on mediumship? Yep, the Anthropology and, of Spirit Mediumship. Yep, um, I'll be doing phone calls from the dead and looking at um, more of the research that I've been doing as I've been progressing. And um, it'll be great, anyone that can get along, um, I'm sure Jack and I would be delighted to see any people that haven't really come from an academic background but want to come and hear the talks and get involved. That'd be great. And, and your uh, website, Cal, is? It's www.calcooper.com. I think if you Google that, it might come up somewhere. It might come up on the seventh page. That's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Cal uh, Cooper. As we say in Boston, it's Cooper. <laughs> so it's, it's, real, it's not spelled the same. Uh, but that's the way we are so anyways I do uh, also want to mention that on July 9th we are having a uh, ghost cruise which is kind of cool always fun and uh, oh, we had it last year it sold out uh, the tickets are on the, the website which is the letter N the letter E for New England ghostproject.com that's ghostproject.com. it's interesting uh, last year Kel is, is that we stopped by an island where uh, there was a uh, Spanish gallon 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 there you go that supposedly crashed during the winter, and they they found the uh, the bodies of some of the crewmen right at the doors of the houses. They had made it all the way up before they froze to death. But uh, we stopped the boat and we did a little EVP set, uh, spe- 
session, and we got an EVP that says rescue boat. So, good night. God bless everyone. Thank you for all listening. Cheers, Jack. Cheers, Ron. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.